And we are back. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, this is a my well. This is time for my favorite part of the show. And um, it could it couldn't be more timely in my opinion. We've been doing the special on commodities, and we've dedicated about the well about six weeks total. So another four weeks. This being one of them. And um, I, I've, I've this guy has been making the rounds for all the right reasons. Um, He's had some excellent calls, excellent returns, and he's been all over this commodity story, specifically energy. Uh, you, you may have seen him on Bloomberg. He's been all over the place. Um, and I'll let him tell you why, because I think, uh, I think it deserves a little bit of pomp and circumstance because he's had some excellent calls and excellent performance. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Josh Young of Bison Interests to the show. Josh I can't tell you how excited I am to have you, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me, Zach. So why don't you give us a little bit of your background? Um, I know you started the firm uh, a few years back. Well, a little more than a few years now. Um, kind of just, I, I always like to set it up uh, and explain the story of how you got to where you were professionally, and then what, what precipitated, right? What, what, was the, what, was the, what was the thing that... Uh, uh, got you to, to, to start the firm Bison Interest that you're running today, which is a hedge fund focused in energy, um, and, and kind of give us that setup and, and tell us the story. Tell us why we're talking to you today. Yeah. So, I mean, there's kind of the long story, which I'll skip, and there's the short story, which is studied economics at University of Chicago, did management consulting out of school, private equity, worked for a family office, tried to run my own hedge fund for a little while uh, after the financial crisis and mostly ended up doing one-off investments with family offices and other energy investors, mostly in the public equity space with a sort of special situation, uh, event-driven focus, and ended up uh, partnering with a gentleman who actually were not partnered anymore, but we worked together on Bison and launched it together in 2015 after the initial oil price crash, with the idea being that there was an opportunity to build a portfolio of the sort of special situation investments that I'd been doing that had been mostly successful up until the crash in 2014, and with the idea of it being a little bit more sustainable, and we named it after bison, which is the only animal that faces into the storm, and so it gets through it safer and faster while the other animals turn tail and run. And so the idea was to embrace volatility, understand that it's a tumultuous time, except that we would be up and down potentially big uh, with the vision to hold valuable assets run by good people with the ability to extract extra value beyond kind of what people typically expect from investments over a multi-year period. And then you guys started that, that was 2015, right, Josh? That's right. Okay. Okay. And so that was, I want to get into what has occurred over the last two years, because as a guy that runs a fund um, actively, um, you've put up some numbers that I have never touched. And we both know how difficult, when I look at your performance numbers from last year, what it shows me and the thing I think about is patience and difficulty. Because you and I both know putting up numbers like that, it's not just that year. Right. It was the things leading up. It was dealing with clients probably going, are you out of your mind? And and like you said, you guys pointed into the storm. I, I actually didn't know that about Bison, but I, I know for a fact that that's part of what got you there. But what what was it like trying to do this 
I, I, I imagine running a fund like that from 2015 to 2020 wasn't either easy either, right? Nobody was interested in that kind of stuff. Everybody was tech, Tesla. So what, were, what was that five-year run like? So I would say people are still not interested in this stuff. So yeah. basically, um, I mean, it was gr- very difficult, partly because there was an energy private equity bubble going on then. And so everyone wanted to invest in energy and they wanted to put it into private equity funds who had been putting up great numbers. And as a value investor, this was very unexciting to me because there was lots of money coming in, all competing on certain assets. And some of those funds did well because they were able to flip assets into other companies at huge valuations, uh, subsequently, in many cases, tanking those other companies that way overpaid. Um, And there were a few discoveries of fields that private equity was better at extracting than public. Um, And so there were a few kind of numbers that were kind of real in all of that boom and then subsequent bust. Um, And uh, so we were in a asset class that was out of favor in a sector that was out of favor um, with a methodology, which is sort of value plus catalyst investing, which was deeply out of favor and became more and more out of favor over time. And, you know, there just wasn't, there hasn't been a respite. Like it's just gotten harder and, um, you know, independent of up or down years, like this is not, it's, it's like a, massive pain trade Mm. and the pain isn't over yet, which is exciting to me because it means I think there's still tremendous opportunity. Um, but it's also, I mean, the same people that have hated it or not wanted it or refused to allocate to it in 2015 have similar objections in 2022 versus, uh, what they had in 2015, 2016. I mean, they, they like will say different things, but really what they mean is they don't like actively managed public equities. They don't see the ability to outperform, even with evidence of it over a multi-year period. They don't see, they don't believe in the ability for an investor to outperform. They, they believe in the ability for investors on the private market to charge them immense fees and to somehow outperform but they don't believe in the ability for someone to just do well in the public market through a disciplined process. And uh, they don't believe in oil and gas and they don't believe in actively managed public equities. So there's really kind of this whole set of things that haven't changed. And from my perspective, that indicates tremendous opportunity still. No, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. And, and, um, I, you and I have not spoken before. We've got a lot of, uh, a lot of common acquaintances and friends, um, but it's interesting the way you describe your style because that's very much how we run our value slash non-constrained fund, which is a, a focus on value uh, with a catalyst, right? Um, and it, I think the way you speak about that in general and then about the energy markets in particular, I, I couldn't echo those sentiments enough. It, it has been extraordinarily tough. Uh, it's from, from, especially from 2015 to 2020, you know, almost like you could win on the economic side of it. You could win on the financial side of it and, and the securities wouldn't even respond, or maybe they might even go lower. Um, so I think, I think all of us in that category probably deserve a pat on the back just for surviving it. Um, so let's, let's move a little bit more now into the crisis. So how were you guys positioned? And, and, and this is kind of a, I want to tell the story just because, I, let's face it, you know, most investors will never put up those kind of numbers in a year. So I, I want the listeners to hear it. 
But I also want to hear the story, too. Like I said, I've never thrown up those kind of numbers in a year. So how were you guys positioned going into COVID? And then how did you capitalize? Kind of run me through the story, you know, starting in January in 2020 and and how you were seeing the world, how you responded, how you, you know, how you were set up going into it and how you capitalized. Yeah. And, and just to be clear, I'm not offering uh, securities or, or to you know allow people to invest into Bison. It's a private partnership. And I'm going to avoid speaking to specifics about the performance. It's possible to find stuff. People leaked our letters and fact sheets and stuff um, for various reasons, good and bad. Um, and so, you know, it's possible to find this. So I won't I won't get into too much specifics uh, yeah. around the actual returns, obviously. But from a positioning perspective, the the thought around COVID was that we, we saw this test um, of what COVID does to an elderly population, which is these cruise ships in January of 2020. And we heard these horror stories about what was happening in China. And our take was that the Chinese information was wrong, which is we were right about, and that COVID would have a low mortality rate, which we were right about. Um, and we were just wrong that the whole world decided to freak out and shut down. And so we were not positioned for that. We are a long-only strategy. And so we're set up as an investment partnership with a kind of a concentrated portfolio and longer-term horizon. So in that way, it's, I guess, more of like a Buffett-style partnership than um, than a typical hedge fund. And so we're really not set up to go short stocks against our exposure. Um, we could have built more cash. We did build a little um, going into that. And obviously that turned out to be a mistake. And you know, it was something where we, we suffered a very large drawdown um, from the start of 2020 to, I guess, the peak in uh, early April. Okay. Okay. Now, I, and I certainly don't want to get into regulatory trouble. I can speak about your performance, can't I? I think so. Yeah, yeah, okay. So for the listeners at home, and without putting them out, when we say you had a good year, we're talking over 350%. Okay, so he won't say it because he's a humble guy and he doesn't want to get in trouble, but I will. And, um, and, and like I echoed before, I, you know, so many times, you know, this is not the Kathy Wood sitting, again, not taking a shot at Kathy Wood, and I'm speaking to the listeners now. We're not having him on because he put up good numbers. That happens to we're having him on because of what he was invested in and the pain that I know that he went through the consternation, probably the sleepless nights and more importantly, the discipline it it took to stick with that trade. And um, all too often, people do not understand that that is how you make big outperforming years. So there must have been a point. Um. And, and, you know, I look back on it when oil went negative, um, we started, uh, you know, slapping on exposure. Um, and the big mistake we made was not putting on enough. Um, is, what what got you to deploy that cash? Did you reap I'm assuming going into it because, you know, you mentioned the large, large drawdown. You were pretty much concentrated in energy at that point or were you energy all, all energy going into it? Yeah, all energy going into it, all energy coming out of it. We did actually reposition um, because we didn't expect the lockdowns. There was a real concern that the lockdowns would last. I mean, they they ended up lasting way too long. It was very uneconomic. It was very bad for public health. And um, we just didn't know how long they would last. So we actually sold a little bit of stuff at very low prices to go buy tanker stocks. And that did not work. 
I mean, it did work in the sense that we owned enough of those that if lockdowns lasted, the first set of hard lockdowns, if they lasted six months instead of two, we were going to be okay. And the job was to just not lose all of the money to be there in the end for an oil recovery. And then we were able to sell the tanker exposure as reopening started and redeploy it, having lost a little on the trade, but having essentially, I think, protected from that sort of potential zero outcome. And then from the portfolio perspective, we were very careful about what exposure we had because we're always very careful about what exposure we have in terms of not owning companies that have an easy path to bankruptcy and often owning stocks in companies where the management teams own a lot and where they're very aligned in terms of not doing the easy thing of in a downturn filing for bankruptcy and then getting the five or 10% management ownership on a post reorg sort of equity. And so um, that helped us a lot, not having zeros along the way. And then, um, yeah, I think I think that's probably the, the best kind of way to describe. And yeah, I mean, it's really tough. I mean, there were days and weeks and months where it was I mean, it was as bad as it gets, but they weren't zeros. And we knew the companies and the teams really well. We knew the assets and it was it was just a question of time in terms of what would rewrite things and when and um you know, I guess here we are a couple of years later and some of that's happened. So what what have you seen now? Now, taking a step back in, in looking at <clears throat> the energy industry in particular uh, and then and then kind of focusing in on oil, um, what is what do you think if we were going to write a narrative or a story about what has happened to that industry since 2014? Um, what, what would that story be in terms of? Obviously, I don't think there's been a lot of capital flowing into that space outside of private equity, like you mentioned. Um, but but where are we at in terms of I, I think one of the things that surprises people is that and you can correct me if I'm wrong, because I, I, I know enough to be dangerous. I, I've been around commodity investing. I have not. You know, you're one of the guys I follow because, you know, this sector so much better and with a deeper, you know, and, and wider breadth of knowledge than I do. Um how would you describe that sector right now? And, and then also since you've been in it, I mean, obviously it's been tough. Um, it's been a lot better recently. Um, but you know, do we have an oil boom on our hands? What, what is the, what is the number one thing when you're looking at this sector right now in this entire industry, where, what do you see as the state of oil production in the world? Where are we headed is, you know, for those out there that say high prices fix high prices and they're like, oil's just going to go back down to 50 bucks. Um, what is different about this cycle? What do you see as the state of the industry and, and where are we at in terms of, where, where you think the future is going. And, and what I'm talking about is, you know, production levels, can they meet demand? Kind of give us the state of the union, if you will. That's that's a great question. And I think so starting, the, the thesis with Bison starting in 2015 was that prices for some of these stocks were down, let's say 80% from their 2014 highs. And the average mid cap might have been down 30 to 50%. The average small cap might have been down, let's say, 50 to 80%. Some of the companies were impaired and just going to zero. And the thought was that we'd go and buy companies at, you know, two to four times EBITDA at, and typically it was like four times at the time, um, 
and we'd buy them at four times EBITDA at like $50 oil and with some financial leverage, so typically two times debt to cash flow and two times uh, price to cash flow, um, we'd own them, uh, preferably companies that were strong enough to survive a potentially longer downturn and that over time they would re-rate and we didn't need multiple expansion back to the eight times that they all used to trade at at higher oil prices in the peak in 2014. We just needed them to stay at four times and have oil recover and have them grow a little bit of value. And the problem is that those small caps in between then and now traded down to, in many cases, we own things today, even after the recent rally at two to three times cash flow. And, you know, maybe four times free cash flow, sometimes three times free cash flow. Mm -hmm. And so um, there's been this multiple compression, and that's driven, I think, mostly by outflows from the industry, regardless of profits by the businesses. And then there was this cyclical downturn, which is that there was too much investment in oil from, let's say, uh, 2003 to 2012. So that essentially 10-year period set up for a downturn. And we experienced that cyclical downturn. But in addition, we also saw a couple of big discoveries and technology improvements, mostly in shale, along with a little bit of Iraq coming back online and Russian production proving more sustainable than people expected. And so you kind of had this cyclical downturn along with um, an additional kind of oil boom and bust going on concurrently. And I think the combination of those followed by a pandemic really were enough to knock the industry off from its prior trajectory from production um, to the point where here we are at much higher prices and the trajectory isn't even really to grow world production much, if at all, right now. So you need way more stuff just to get world production on a growth trajectory even today with all the rigs that have been added in the last six months or year, even with all the offshore stuff and various countries bringing on stuff. And so there's really this supply constrained world that's very different from where it's been for a long time. And then just to add one thing to that, OPEC was always this big wild card and there was this misconception that OPEC would be there no matter what. And what we we understood starting bison was, hey, there is a bunch of buffer here and that buffer is going to narrow as these countries. Uh, Saudi had um, ramped their drilling rig activity in 2014 as a part of the oil price war uh, that helped knock prices down a lot and started or was, I guess, the catalyst for the cyclical downturn that in retrospect was coming from the oil investment boom. And the, the thought always was that OPEC would eventually run out of spare capacity given the trajectory of the industry. And with COVID, along with, um, with the longevity of the cyclical downturn, there was enough capacity destruction and underinvestment in capacity by OPEC and OPEC Plus that we would essentially run out of spare capacity and get into a situation similar to the 1970s where there would be a forced re-rate up in the back end of the curve for oil that would re-rate equities dramatically. So there was this shorter term thesis of, hey, let's own things at four times EBITDA that grow a lot, that create a lot of value. And then there was this longer term thesis of, hey, we think that prices will reset higher structurally 
into this next up cycle. And so we want to have exposure to these cheap things that are in, intrinsically valuable, that have their own kind of internal catalysts for various reasons and various kinds of catalysts. And we want that exposure if that bleeds into this sort of longer up cycle, that's great because we can catch this. We can benefit from however long this downturn lasts by probably an equivalent amount of time of an up cycle. And so I think we're in the early stages of that up cycle. Okay. Well, okay. So switching gears just a little bit here, not much, just a little bit. Um, I don't need to tell you this. You know this. The impression out there, especially in the mainstream media, financial media, is that the surge in oil is a byproduct of inflation, which is transitory, of course. Uh, And then you've got the uh, Ukraine-Russia disruption. And as soon as inflation peaks and the Ukraine-Russia situation, you know, dissolves and and, and unwinds, uh, it'll be back to normal. We'll be looking at 50 to $65 oil, right? That's the narrative. Um, That's the story that everybody's, you know, for the most part, everybody's parroting um let, let's start right there i i know your thoughts but i'd like to hear i'd like the listeners to hear what what is your problem with that thesis so there aren't any more incremental 50 to 60 dollar barrels of oil in the world so there's enough at that price for oil production to decline a little every year but there's not enough to replace depletion which happens so wells around the world and fields deplete over time. It's the nature of oil fields, right? You have X amount of oil and uh, in in place when you drill your first well in a field. And as it produces over time, there's less and less essentially in the tank. And so in order to replace that, you need to go drill, you need to explore to find new fields, and then you need to delineate them to figure out how big they are and how to develop them. And then you need to develop them. And so there's been too little exploration since 2012, and there's been too little development for the last several years. And so you have this long cycle problem combined with a short cycle problem that led to a predictable re-rate. And so the people that were on the negative side of that re-rate saw COVID as evidence that they were right. But a left tail event where governments around the world for non-scientific and non-economic reasons shut down the world for some amount of time is not evidence that the nature of oil reservoirs and the nature of the oil business has changed. And this has happened many times before. I think one of the things that got me so comfortable with this is looking through historical news reports and historical analyses about the end of oil during other downturns, as well as looking at what people said when things were good for the oil industry. And so when you look at both of those um, over enough of these cycles, you start to understand that, I mean, really price drives narrative. And if you can divorce yourself from that and do the math, there's a lot of opportunity, I think, potentially on both sides of that over long cycles. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with you more. Now, do you think, <clears throat> I think one of the things that people struggle with is sitting there going, wait a second, we weren't undersupplied in 2019, right? We, we had an economic shutdown. Oil goes to negative 37 because nobody's using it. How do we go? And, and again, this isn't so much for me, but for the edification of the listeners, how, how do we go from being fine in 2019 to all of a sudden being short oil? So I think we were actually not fine in early 2020. And Mm. without a COVID shutdown, we were getting into the start of a bull market for oil. 
And that was one of the things that really was hard about the COVID situation for me, in addition, obviously, to the humanitarian thing. And I don't mean to talk down the millions of people who did die during COVID, partly from the disease and partly from bad policy and getting shut down and hospitals not being available and so on. Um, but one of the painful things as an investor was that you had evidence that the super cycle had started. I mean, I kept looking at this JP Morgan report from, I think it was January of 2020 or February of 2020, where they showed this like massive underinvestment in some of the things I'm talking about. And you were already seeing production rolling over. You already saw shale in the US peak from an activity perspective. I think it was in 2018, you saw well productivity starting to fall on oil shale and across the US. And you you just saw the things that you would expect in the next up market uh, for a multi-year period. And so um, I actually, I think, I think that that was contentious and the people that were negative on that felt proven right because oil prices fell. And I mean, it's really fascinating. Again, like I'm very interested in history and many of the people who are very loudly predicting for oil to fall now had some of the same arguments in early 2020 and in prior periods where oil prices pulled back during the prior seven years. And I think it's important to not, um, in the same way as me doing well last year, doesn't mean that I'll necessarily do well for the next three quarters this year um, or at any point in the future. I think it's important to not confuse process and outcome. And, you know, bad analysis can get lucky and be right but it doesn't make it good analysis. And so I think, I think it's just not, I think, I think people didn't understand what was happening then. And there was a sort of very negative bear market mentality and that was reinforced by the COVID downturn. And there's always been a sort of negative story around oil. I mean, frankly, going back as long as I've done it professionally since 2007. And so, um, you know, you can have that negative narrative and have a compelling negative story. And the reality is that as an optimist and an investor over time, you end up being right. And it's just a question of time and a question of being careful in order to survive for an up cycle. And so I guess that's the pushback there. Okay. So now we got now, now, and, and I kind of want to take this, I'm sure you're picking up on this. But I, I, before we get into your thoughts on where we go from here, I kind of want to take, and, and some of this is for my own edification too, I kind of want to take each one of these negative stories, right? Each one of these reasons why, you know, oil has already run its course, each one of these reasons uh, uh, or narratives or stories uh, of why it's not a good investment and, and kind of address them one at a time. Um, w- one of the ones that we have heard about is... Well, yeah, Josh, you might be right. Maybe wells are in decline. Maybe there's underinvestment, but that's the market kind of sniffing out this transition to alternative energy. We don't need oil, nearly as much oil going forward. Technology is going to step in and fill the gap. And oil, global oil demand peaked in 2019, and it's on its way down. Well, what say you? So I'm glad you, you started with an easy one. Um, so <laughs> um, the, that's just wrong. And again, the, um, the alternative energy narrative felt bolstered by the drop in oil demand in 2020. 
Um, and 2020 was one of only two years over the last, I think it's 30 plus years, where there was global oil demand shrinkage. And so it took the global financial crisis for oil to drop temporarily from a demand perspective. I think it was in 2009, maybe for one quarter or two quarters. And then it took uh, the world governments essentially in unison shutting down their economies and forcing their citizens essentially under house arrest to reduce oil demand in 2020. And so if you think about those as the cases where oil demand falls, and then you think about the other, let's say, 38 years where that didn't happen and oil demand rose, uh, it does seem that oil demand falls Falling is kind of similar to like a floaty in a pool where you try pushing it down and it inevitably shoots back up. And so um, oil, uh, alternative energy is very oil intensive and very hydrocarbon intensive. And um, just very simplistically and simply, you could see that when coal prices in China spiked in September and October of last year, uh, the price for the silica going into solar, I think it silica, siliconic, for it was called, but uh, the price for that basic material processed going into solar panels uh, went vertical as well. And so I think that was evidence of sort of the carbon intensity of solar panels that people just forget about when they see these things arriving off the boat from China here in the US. And so there's actually quite a bit of oil intensity for these things. And they're intermittent, unreliable, and tend to have much lower useful lives than expected. So from an energy transition perspective, the faster the transition goes, the more demand you have for hydrocarbons. And so, um, I mean, there's just, we've seen what's happened so far, which is that demand net has increased through this essentially government financed transition so far. And, you know, it looks very likely that that will continue for some time going forward. So are you telling me that these government policies are having the exact opposite impact they were designed to have? That, that can't be. I know be. that sounds crazy, right? <laughs> it's totally unlike every other government policy, which works fantastically well at exactly what the stated goal is. Yeah, yeah, they've got it. Yeah. Uh, so going over to the – or excuse me, the um, uh, on the investment side – um, when we want to let, let's, let's address one of these other narratives now. Um, so we, we've kind of shot a hole here in the global demand side of it. And that very much marries up with, with, uh, the research that we've done. And by a good chunk of that research is reading yours. <laughs> so, uh, you know, my, I tell our listeners all the time, I'm a Jack when it comes to investing, I'm kind of a Jack of all trades, master of none, but I'm really good at finding the people that know what they're talking about. And, uh, uh, you know, why, why run yourself through the ringer when you can find somebody that's done great work. And so we use you for that. One of the, one of our sources, um, but on the, on the investment side, um, where, where is, where is that production going to come from? Obviously we know that, that, uh, that the green for the reasons you just listed, this push to green energy, this push to renewables is not going to be able to fill that gap. And as you've pointed out, it's actually exacerbating the problem. Um, where so that would lead me to believe, and and kind of the thesis for our whole conversation here is that there's going to have to be massive investment in oil. Now, this would also lead me to believe that all of the steps that governments around the world are currently taking, releasing of the strategic uh, uh, petroleum reserves, the SPR, 
would I be right to think that all of these steps taking right, taken right now to suppress the price of oil are actually, again, exacerbating the issue? Because, you know, I think about economics, Josh, and I think, okay, high prices, you know, cure high prices. But that's assuming that production, you know, turns on, right? That, that's assuming that the market responds. Are we seeing that response? And is the production coming online? Uh, no, <laughs> we're not. <laughs> um, and so we, we put out a white paper on the duck dilemma, uh, the dilemma of drilled uncompleted wells being completed faster than they're being replaced. And so that was indicative of material underinvestment and like quarter cycle activity by oil companies that was indicative of um, likely need for substantial future investment just to sustain activity levels at the time we put that out. And so basically those companies have now started drilling more, but they're still seeing drilled uncompleted well counts fall, which means they need to drill even more just to sustain the completion and the number of well activity coming on to production as they had six months ago. And so um, there is a real problem uh, in terms of underinvestment. And there's there's some investment that hadn't been made that's starting to be made offshore. And, and that's very long cycle activity. So using offshore drilling rigs and doing some, there's some exploration, which is good to see. There's some development. Um, but these things typically are longer cycle. And as incremental offshore rigs are coming on, that sort of next wave of production should come in over the next, let's say, two to 10 years, weighted heavily to the back end. And so the thing that's kind of the biggest part that we've noticed, and we included it in a a recent white paper update, Um, we've noticed that there's underinvestment by services companies in their service capacity. And I think that's like driving the duck dilemma and it's driving some of this other underinvestment by producers. And part of the reason why high prices aren't leading to high prices beyond government policy and government rhetoric, which is still negative and increasingly negative. So, you know, whatever the rhetoric is, it's just getting worse. Uh, There's new SEC regulations that are forcing very negative things on U.S. producers and services companies. There's still pressure on financial providers uh, to cut their availability of financing, and there's uh, big private equity funds that are formally swearing off oil and gas. Uh, Now, I think all of the major private equity funds at this point have done so uh, between Blackstone and um, Apollo and so on. I mean, even Apollo, right, where you would think that they would be interested from a distressed investment perspective and being allowed to invest in oil and gas, and they're, they're not doing it anymore. So, yeah, I think I think you need I think the biggest thing that's missing is actually service capacity investment. And that does not appear to be happening yet. And there's that's like the first step towards being able to provide enough production to replace some of the short cycle stuff. And then since I did mention the longer cycle offshore stuff, that might be enough to offset world production declines. It certainly doesn't appear, at least at current levels and on the current trajectory, it certainly does not appear to be enough to be able to get the world back into an oversupplied situation 
when that production does come on over the next two to 10 years. So we actually need a lot more. And again, we're just not seeing if it's an A to Z problem, we're just, we're not seeing A or B or C. And so you can't get to Z if you don't have the A all the way through. And so, you know, I think, I think high prices will eventually lead to, to lower prices, but we're not even, again, we haven't even started yet with that process. Yeah. When you're looking at production, Josh, uh, and, and I, I look at several different things, but when you're looking at production and you want to know whether production is increasing or decreasing, what, what are the one or two or top three things that you're looking at to tell you whether that production is coming online and whether the market is responding to the prices? What, what, what are you watching that tells you whether or not that's happening? So again, like the, the very simplest thing is looking at the big oil services companies and seeing what their capital commitments look like and like where they're spending money to the extent that they're spending money. And right now, the big oil services companies are spending money on people to try to retain their staffs and then to hire people to use existing equipment. And then they're spending money on more expensive input costs on their existing technology and equipment. And where they don't seem to be spending money, at least relative to historical levels, is on R&D and on real capital expenditures to expand their services capacity. So we have a lot of stuff that's kind of burnt off in terms of equipment that's no longer serviceable and would need to be replaced. And then there's a lot of research and development and a lot of uh, building activity for various equipment that hasn't happened over the last many years. So to get back to a level where there can be enough upstream investment to actually move the needle on production, you need to see that. And again, that's, you know, there's lots of different uh, data sources and there's lots of different very short-term oriented things that people get focused on. And sometimes I'll talk about them because they can be interesting, but I think they're very misleading and it's very easy to get sucked into this sort of like weekly EIA, the energy information, um, I think it stands for association or something. Mm -hmm. Um, and then uh, various, they have a monthly report. There's various other sorts of uh, providers of short-term data. It's very easy, I think, to get sucked into those sorts of reports and to kind of miss the forest for the trees. And so I, I think really following the services companies, following the upstream companies from a budget perspective, noticing where they're producing more or less versus their guidance, um, noticing if there's new large discoveries or not, and then where those fit into kind of the global expected supply and demand balance. Um, you know, I think it's, it's, not, it's not an easy and simple sort of thing. There's, it's kind of watching a whole set of things. But the first place I'd look for is when do the big oil services companies actually start to spend a lot more money to expand their capacity? And it doesn't seem like we're there yet. Where, where does where do rig counts fit in? It's funny, it's funny when you you're talking about the IEA reports and and the I hear so many people talk about rig counts. I understand why they would, and and I understand a, a, uh, how that could be a valuable indicator. Do, do you include rig counts in there? If you know, if not, why? If if you do, why? Kind of give us where you think rig counts fit into that picture. Yeah, so so rig counts matter because you need another roughly hundred oil oriented drilling rigs in order to have enough operating that the drilled uncompleted well count stops falling and maybe starts to go up, which you need it to go up in order to maintain the right amount of working capital for the industry. So 
you know, if you have a factory, you need a certain number of blanks to turn them into widgets of whatever sort of things. And if you have a depleting number of uh, inputs for your widgets, uh, I was calling them blanks, um, you're going to reduce your operating capacity for your factory. So uh, the rigs are kind of the uh, blank manufacturers and they make those available. And so if you're not getting enough inputs, you obviously can't get enough outputs. So that's why, and again, on a weekly basis, the numbers don't matter that much, but in aggregate, we have not seen nearly enough rig additions to be able to provide enough, um, to provide enough, uh, of these inputs in order to have uh, sufficient output. And we're not also seeing the investment in building new ones in order to be able to have enough of them. Well, Josh, there's another interesting thing happening too, because the cost of building those rigs due to inflation and commodity shortages, uh, I got to imagine the, 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 the cost of building those rigs, well, even labor costs too, right? The cost of building those rigs, the cost of all of these inputs has climbed, has it not? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the this sort of like commodities upcycle is not something that I was factoring in as much in my analysis, let's say in 2015, but it does help a lot, right? Like the more expensive steel is, the more expensive various other inputs are, the more expensive it is to replace a barrel of oil that's being depleted and that raises the break-even price for oil. And so um, I think that's a big thing that people miss in this sort of 50 or $60 price target. I mean, you don't see that many of those anymore, but the ones that are sharing that, I guess, have to have such a strong deflationary view that they think that steel costs are going down 50 plus percent and labor costs are going down and various other inputs are going down so much that that could facilitate uh, rig costs going down. But then that's it, still like where the thing breaks is, okay, so if all that stuff is cheaper, you still need the oil companies and the service companies to actually invest to make new rigs to then run them. And then you need the upstream companies to invest to drill to bring on new production to get drilled and completed wells, and then you need them to invest in frack stacks in order to complete the wells and tie them in. And so there's all this investment that I think people just make up as if it's assumed that it's going to be there, but you need high prices for a while in order to actually attract that. And the obvious sources of that, institutions investing in public equity funds, institutions investing through private equity, they've cut those off. So it's going to take a lot longer and it's going to require much higher returns this cycle to get some of those A to, let's say, E sort of steps started in order to be able to get eventually to the Z of too much production relative to demand on a long-term basis. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. One of the other things I wanted to visit, um, you mentioned, I'm, I'm assuming you're probably familiar with it, but just to give people an idea, Total recently uh, announced that that big find off the uh, coast of Nigeria. Are you familiar with that one? Yeah, off of Namibia. Namibia, so excuse me, Namibia. Um, and, and we own a company that, ha- that, that uh, actually a small Canadian player, um, and we'll get into that. Uh, but, but we own a company that has a stake in that oil field. How long do you think? Obviously, there's a range. How long does it take for that find to actually result in barrels in the market? 
Um, <laughs> well, uh, I didn't notice exactly how long Total said it would take, but I think that was a new discovery for that basin. And so, I mean, that could take 10 years right. because they could now drill. So they have a discovery and it's huge and it's very exciting. And frankly, it's going to be very hard for a small company to keep up. Hess has had trouble keeping up with Exxon in Guyana uh, with a giant discovery. And, you know, they're a very big company, well-run, lots of available financing. Um, and they've struggled to some extent. And it's been a challenge for this downturn to fund that. Small companies, especially if they don't have outside, sor- if they don't have internal sources of financing, they don't have assets that they can uh, leverage, it's going to be quite difficult for smaller companies to keep up. The flip side is maybe there's a lot of value there so they could sell down stakes or get financing or whatever externally. Um, so you can probably tell from how I'm talking about this, I tend to not have too much exploratory exposure through small producers. Um, so the next steps for Total likely are one, to um, extensively test this well that they've drilled, two, to then shut it in and plug and abandon it. And this might sound wasteful, but that's just what you do with exploratory wells. You don't drill them to produce, you drill them to test the reservoir, understand what you can, and then you get rid of it because, you know, it would have cost you twice as much to drill a well that would actually um, be capable of feeding into a production system. So they're going to go probably drill four or five or something more wells in that area to see where the top and bottom of the reservoir are, to test the aerial extent, um, to learn various things about it from a pressure perspective, what's in there. And these are important things to figure out what sort of production system to put on. So is it going to be floating production offshore? Is it going to be that they tie it into an onshore facility? Um, What are the specs going to be for that? And then maybe they go and get something built just for this field, which of course takes multiple years to get built. But again, we don't, they don't even have the data. They just know they discovered a big, um, a big oil pool, or they think they discovered a big oil pool, which still is going to need to be appraised and delineated through multiple follow-on wells. So yeah, I mean, a very long time. And that's not them wasting time or their shareholders' money. You know, this is all value-add, and it's appropriate given the giant investment necessary to bring that sort of field onto production. And then uh, the cost, if you look at Kashgan in, I think that's in Kazakhstan or Azerbaijan, and a few other fields like that, oil majors made mistakes in the um, the early to mid-2000s um, where they didn't do some of this sort of work, tried to rush it, and ended up with huge problems and cost overruns. I think Kashgan was supposed to start at $10 billion and ended up costing $50 billion. And some of that was steel prices rising and labor rising, and a lot of that was, uh, from what I recall and from what I saw, bad planning and um, insufficient uh, sort of appraisal before execution. So, so these are important steps. But I guess the reason you're asking is, hey, like, how long does this take? Like, does this help this cycle? And the answer is probably like this. This discovery may be at the start of the next downturn in terms of production, or or maybe uh, you know it's needed in order to balance the market on the long term basis. In which case, maybe it won't even contribute to a downturn. But it's just very unlikely that production is seen for many years. Yeah, and one of the reasons I asked the question is, um, and ob- obviously you know better, but 
it, and I guess it makes sense, right? You've had this, you know, the biggest, longest bull market in U.S. history driven by a single sector of stocks, pretty much. Um, and I, I, there's this misconception out there uh, that it's as easy as just flipping a switch, right? It's just as, it's as easy as telling. One of the things that you could probably speak to it in much greater detail and, and, and much greater accuracy than I can is, and you mentioned it earlier, is the uh, capacity, the OPEC capacity thing, right? Oh, well, OPEC's got spare capacity. They'll just flip a switch. They'll start pumping more oil. This just isn't that simple, is it? This is a complex process that is highly capital intensive. And if I'm talking about the same, if you're, if we're talking about the same J.P. Morgan note, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think J.P. Morgan's estimates were we needed 750 billion dollars of investment to meet to meet projected energy needs in 2030. Is that is that right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that sounds directionally correct. And then, I mean, they've put out a few, so I don't remember what their most recent estimate is, but those numbers rise in every one of these because the labor costs are higher and the other commodity input costs are higher. And, you know, it turns out that in the immediate, the middle part of a cycle, uh, suppliers actually want to earn a profit. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, you end up with the service companies needing to make money and the manufacturers needing to make money. And so those numbers escalate rapidly. And that's the projected shortfall. Um, given the current trajectory of rising cash flow versus rising uh, capital expenditures, it's reasonable, I think, to expect that number to double or more in terms of incremental investment necessary to meet the needs that J.P. Morgan sees. And frankly, they might be slightly understating uh, demand in 2030. So I guess let's see. I understand why they would do that. Like you kind of want to, if you're going to have a very aggressive call on one thing, you want to be kind of cautious on your other calls. But it does look like they're forecasting a little lower demand growth on an annual basis than we've seen historically. And there is an argument that at least a couple of fairly large, well-populated countries in kind of emerging and frontier markets are getting to a point on GDP per capita where we've seen oil demand and hydrocarbon demand in other countries inflect higher. And so I think there's a decent chance that we end up over the next 10 years with higher oil demand growth than we saw over the prior 10 years. Okay. Now, one of the things I wanted to make sure, uh, we don't have you here for all day. I I could sit here and talk about this for another two hours, but uh, (laughs) you've got things to do. Um, One of the things that has concerned me, um, and I I wouldn't say it's had a big impact on how we're positioned, but it's something that I'm watching uh, watching out for. I personally view it as not very likely. Uh, But I would like to ask you about the potential of an export ban here in the United States. We've seen it before. Um, What would let's say, Josh, that come September this year, we're looking at 150 WTI, you know, maybe 160. Uh, We got midterm elections coming up in November. Now, you and I both know politicians do not make really important policy decisions just because of elections. Right. Uh, (laughs) So what would stop them from issuing an export ban? Because in my and it's not just my opinion. I've heard other people echo this as well. uh, People that I think are smart and intelligent and well-informed. I think if they did that, in my opinion, you'd see a very sharp 
uh, uh, pullback in, in WTI. I would expect Brent to move almost as much or as much or potentially even more the opposite way. Maybe you'd see a historic spread between the two. Um, what would stop them from doing that? So um, from what I can tell, most of the discussion around this originated with a brilliant geopolitical policy analyst who I think just didn't understand the U.S. energy balance that well. And um, what I'd focus on are uh, a couple of well, three really simple things. So one, when I look at energy policy and, you know, I probably talk too much publicly about how much I dislike various energy policies just because it's been a series of unforced errors that have been bullish for oil. So I'm making more money because of them, but I think they're bad for the world and they hurt the poorest and uh, most disenfranchised people in the world the most. And so I think they're unfortunate. I'd rather make a little less money and make it from demand growth over time and not have policy failure. But when you look at U.S. energy policy, especially with the current administration, as well as given the overlap between the current administration and the Obama administration, how they navigated as well. So it's kind of this is a continuation to some extent of the Obama administration. When you look at those policies, there's been one thing that's been absolutely consistent across them, which is that almost every policy, if not everyone, has had an impact of, of lower gasoline prices at the pump in the short term. And so there have been various like taxes that have raised things, but every sort of regulation and policy that's been implemented, these strategic petroleum reserve releases um, that were kind of foolish and short-sighted, various other policies that make very little sense, all of them have been oriented to lowering the price at the pump over the short term. And so a export ban actually would not lower the price at the pump in the short term. And again, I don't have a very high view of the longer-term impact of these policies. In fact, I think they've been very detrimental and raised gasoline prices along with uh, hurting the well-being of the poorest people in the world. Um, that being said, given the continuity of the effect of these various otherwise unconnected energy policies with this one thing, which is lower price at the pump, I don't think that's going to happen. I think they know that won't happen, and I think it's a reason why it's not happening. Again, anything could happen, um, but this one in particular seems very unlikely. So why will it not – and they, they know this. Uh, again, my, my assessment is they know this based on them not having done this but having done other things that have this sort of short-term price impact. Um, so they know this because – it would not help the refineries that produce U.S. gasoline because those refineries, at least some of them, import Brent-priced oil or world oil to be able to process uh, to get to gasoline and to get to diesel. And so because there's essentially this balance, we're not a net exporter of oil. We are a net exporter of natural gas and maybe a net exporter of hydrocarbons generally. But because we're not a net exporter of oil, banning exports of oil doesn't result. It might result in higher gasoline prices, but it doesn't result in lower gasoline prices. There's another big problem, and then I'll, uh, this has kind of been a longer, uh, I, I think this is something particularly interesting and worth talking about. But the one other problem is that 
Canadian oil flows through the U.S. and is exported. And based on my understanding of kind of new NAFTA, it would be a violation of that for the U.S. to stop exporting Canadian oil. I mean, it would be a massive scandal, and it's very, a very big part of the Canadian overall economy. And it, they're just not... It would be very surprising for the U.S. to break a major trade treaty in order to temporarily reduce the price at the pump slightly. And so I think between between those two things, it just seems very unlikely that it would happen. And for those reasons. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the one of the ways I've looked at this and handicapped this situation and why I don't see it as a very strong possibility myself is that not with, you know notwithstanding the points that you've brought up but also uh considering the scenario going on in Europe if we did ban the exports of oil or energy or you know whatever um wouldn't that be kind of sort of pushing Europe down the river and just saying you know good luck with Putin i mean w- w- or am i reading that wrong um, I'm sorry. I don't know that I fully followed that. So so Europe being so reliant on Russian energy sources, wouldn't that – if we quit exporting oil, would that bolster his power? Would that bolster – you know, the, the, that I, – I would think that it would result in, in significantly higher prices in Europe as well. So so wouldn't that, wouldn't that be effectively – you know um, – Kind of think of it as like a Missouri boat ride. Remember, remember uh, outlaw Josie Wales. You know the, the the Missouri boat ride. Are you familiar with that one? I'm I'm not, but I do understand what you're saying. So okay, just, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll skip the boat ride. Yeah, there you and, go. Uh, well, hey, and that's a question. And that's a great movie, by the way. I, I would suggest you give it a, give it a watch. Uh, but yeah, go ahead. Okay, I'll check it out. So, um, so I think it's it's similar to the Canadian thing, where I think our larger. Uh, treaties and kind of the inclination of the current administration and of the Obama administration previously is to be closer to the extent possible with Europe and with Canada, um, given shared policy goals on other fronts, given shared uh, values and so on. And so, yeah, I think it would be viewed very unfavorably in Europe as well. I think the Canadian issue is more logistical, which is why I lean on that more. And Canada is a major trading partner with the U.S., and there would be huge economic negative impacts if we messed up with this new NAFTA. So I don't, it just, the the European thing would be, there'd be pressure, and those are kind of like social reasons not to do it. Um, and, And obviously the EU is a big trading partner with the U.S., but it just isn't as, it's not as near term and as urgent. The Canadian issue is near term and urgent and is a very, easy reason to see why this might be getting considered and just rejected over and over again, because it just isn't something that's really actionable from a U.S. policy perspective. Okay, so now you, you brought up the Canadian plays, and this is something that uh, I, I noticed you talking about on, on, uh, on Twitter. Um, I would say the majority of our exposure is via uh, Canadian companies um, and Canadian producers and um, um, you know, some exploration companies as well. You mentioned that you're a fan of, of, of the Canadian plays. Everybody on this show knows why I am, I, why I am. I'd like to hear your take on uh, these Canadian players. One of, one of the reasons why I liked them, Josh, and one of the reasons we got you on the show is because I saw them as being sort of outside the, uh, outside the, uh, 
the export uh, ban risk. Um, the other reason is I, I just can't believe how cheap some of these things are. Well, you give us your thesis, why you're a fan of the Canadian players, and, and maybe I'm overstating your exuberance, um, but, but what I was reading through is that it sounded like you, you felt somewhat like we do, which is some of your favorite plays in the space are, in, are, are, are the Canadian players. Kind of, kind of give us your thoughts and your thesis behind that. Yeah, happy to. So um, we just put out a white paper on how oil companies are making more money now than they were in 2014 and how Canadian oil and gas companies are making even more money. And some of that's driven by lower cost structures with similar revenue on a sort of oil price equivalent basis. Some of it's driven by higher oil and gas prices now than we've seen for many years. And then some of it for the Canadians is driven by a weak currency. Uh, There's a massive real estate bubble in Canada that may be unwinding and Canada was much more strict with COVID lockdowns and as a result has seen a weaker currency and weaker economy. And so um, that currency difference versus the last time oil was at 100 is helping costs for Canadian producers be lower and revenue be higher. Uh, on a kind of dollar equivalent basis. And then um, the pipeline situation for Canada also has gotten mostly resolved, which means that the basis differential, like the actual price the companies are getting, is generally better now than it was a number of years ago, even with a similar headline price of West Texas Intermediate at, let's say, 100. So that's kind of the very, that's the baseline I guess there are a couple other things. So one, I've been attracted to Canadian producers um, since they actually traded down a lot when the NDP, there was a, from a U.S. perspective, far left-wing government that got control in Alberta, and there was a lot of flight of capital from Alberta-focused companies and secondarily from other provincial, uh, other uh, provinces-focused companies. as a part of this sort of enhanced geopolitical risk for Canadian companies in 2015. And the reason that's relevant today is that there's just been less capital deployed in Canadian resource plays and in Canadian oil and gas fields than in the U.S. So that means that there's, on average, in general, more uh, high-return rock. There's more inventory available on a like-for-like basis among the Canadian producers. And then, and obviously every field is different and every whatever, but just generally it's helpful that there is less money there. It also means that because there's been more capital withheld for longer, there wasn't the same sort of boom and bust, which means that the decline rates for these companies and the structure of the companies is much more sustainable. They've been essentially surviving a more exacerbated downturn for longer. There was less private equity capital in there to juice things and then crush things. There's less trapped private equity capital there now that's trying to exit as the private equity firms exit the industry. And so kind of for all of those different reasons, that's how you get lower valuations. And it's also how you get essentially excess profits versus what you would have expected in this circumstance. 
So, Josh, closing up, and, I, and uh, again, I, I could sit here and do this for two or three hours, um, but I know you're a busy man. Closing up, what are some of the things that you guys are paying attention to that maybe I didn't ask about that you think it is so important for whether you're a professional investor or the retail investor at home? Um, what are some other things or, or maybe one other thing that, that you think we need to be looking at and we need to be aware of that we haven't covered yet, um, if there is anything? Kind of a big question. Yeah, (laughs) no, I think the thing that I think of most right now and I think that many people are thinking about right now, and it's kind of funny because like the concern of the month for oil and gas tends to shift month to month. Mm -hmm. And so right now there's kind of two. One is the China lockdowns that are happening that started in Shanghai and have spread. And that's getting balanced, I guess, by Shanghai partially reopening and potentially seeing China move away from their zero COVID policy like the rest of the world has done. And so um, that's a real concern. And China could, I mean, you know, there was a cultural revolution decades ago where a large number of Chinese people were starved to death by the Chinese Communist Party. And so there is a possibility it's very unlikely, and it seems like the trend is now towards reopening there rather than full lockdown and inevitable, essentially, starvation, uh, mass starvation and a horrific you know, thing for humanity to see that happen. So, But again, from an economic perspective, that is a risk to oil, and it does seem like that risk is being mitigated. The other thing, and again, it's worth addressing these just because there will be sort of smaller downturns for oil as it's very volatile and it's helpful, I find, to pay close attention to these, sometimes to sell into them a little bit to be able to free up cash to be able to buy as panic ensues and then hold at lower price points on average. And sometimes just to understand what I'm getting myself into and not try to get too cute in terms of trading around stuff. Um, the, uh, the other kind of big concern, obviously, is that with the Federal Reserve in the U.S. and other uh, central banks uh, shifting from quantitative easing to quantitative tightening and with um, the interest rate rise that's come along with uh, the the Fed in the U.S. and uh, similar sort of uh, central banks uh, guidance with their with their interest rates starting to rise. Um, you know, there there is the risk of a of a recession either in the U.S. or potentially worldwide and or affecting large economies in the world. And it is possible that we could see oil demand destruction from that. And between the two of those, I think that actually the financial risk is more real and it could lead to uh, wealth effect driven and economic activity driven oil demand destruction. Um, That being said, I think the supply issue is so great that my inclination is to hedge where possible some of this economic blow-up risk, but really take the exposure to likely higher oil prices over time. And part of the guidance for that is what happened in the 1970s, where oil and oil and gas stocks did very well over time with a lot of volatility, as well as what happened from 2007 to 2008, where there was similar sort of economic slowdown, similar interest rate rises, and oil doubled and oil and gas stocks, especially on the small side, in some cases went up five or 10 X before they crashed. And so kind of either of those sorts of scenarios are good reasons to track what's happening in the broader economy as an oil and gas investor. Um, And, you know, frankly, things don't look amazing economically. And uh, I think it's a, a real risk to consider. 
Yeah, and, that, and that's one of the things that, that is absolutely a real risk. It's something that we're watching. But one of the things I love about this trade and this scenario is that in my view, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but in my view, let's say a scenario like that plays out. Unless you think we're going to a Mad Max world, right? Uh, typically, the poly, policy response to a serious you know, economic downturn or serious recession is going to be probably bullish for oil. And then if that scenario were to happen and oil will, were to fall out of bed and there was massive energy or, or massive demand destruction, doesn't that just sort of kick the can down the road even further and backlog the current problem? Yeah, yeah, definitely. But it can mean that stocks have high volatility to the downside as well as to the upside. And so I think it's something I've heard people talking about putting on leverage and owning lots of options and other stuff. And I think, you know, my take on it's pretty simple. The vast majority of my exposure is through common equities in companies that have either no debt or have paid down a huge portion of the debt they used to have. And where there's, in my opinion, uh, a pretty good chance that they'd be able to survive through a prolonged oil downturn. So I think it's it's kind of a, a buckle up, but for me at least, maintaining significant exposure because it does seem like, like you're saying, even if there is a big financial downturn and recession, uh, on the back end of it, there should be such a strong market that kind of similar to COVID, it was very painful to hold through it, but it was better to own oil stocks and hold them through it to today than to try to time it. And, and I think that's where some of the hate for the sector is, is people that have tried to time these things and missed runs in these stocks. Um, I just, I think it's your, I I'm, think I'm better off with my money, with my client money, owning these things, having the exposure and understanding that over a multi-year period, there should be significant additional upside going forward. I couldn't agree with you more, pal. And I cannot thank you enough for, for coming on the show. It's been a long time coming, wanted to get you on, really happy to do it. And hopefully it's just one of many. I would encourage people to do what we've done. Uh, and just if nothing else, just start off following you at Twitter at Josh underscore young underscore one. And then people kind of think it's funny when, when I do this, but um, I'm, I'm a big believer in, uh, you know, getting getting smart, uh, you know, well-researched people on the show. You're a money manager. I'm a money manager. Um, but I, I couldn't recommend you enough. If you're an accredited investor out there that wants more exposure to the sector, which I, I think in general most investors need, uh, they can also contact you or email you at bisoninterest.com. That's the name of the fund. You're based out of Houston. I'm sure you'd be happy to talk to them. Um, and uh, anyway, pal, we'll be watching and sitting back and, and watching you run here and uh, keeping up with the white papers. And I, I just uh, a huge fan of your work and everything you're doing. And like I said, I just can't be can't say thank you enough for coming on. Yeah, thanks, Zach. I've listened to your show a number of times and really enjoyed it. So it's, it's an honor to get to be on here. Well, I appreciate that, pal. Honors all ours. And anyway, you guys, like I said, follow him at Josh underscore young underscore one. And if you are interested, and I couldn't recommend this fund enough, uh, you can contact him at bisoninterest.com. And I'm sure, he'll be able, uh, I'm sure he'll be happy to help you out. Anyway, Josh, have a great weekend. And uh, if, we can, if, if there's ever a word you want to get out, I mean, I know you've got bigger media outlets than us banging your door down. But if we can ever return the favor in any way, let us know. We'd love to have you back on again. And here's to another great weekend and some great barbecuing. You got any, you got any good? Let, let's get to the heart of it really quick in closing. What, what is on the menu at the Young, uh, the young Home this weekend? Yeah. <sighs>
that's a great question. We, uh, <laughs> I just uh, smoked some beef ribs yesterday and had some uh, friends in the oil and gas industry over uh, last night for dinner. Um, I actually don't know what we're doing this weekend for food. We'll probably end up grilling some steaks at some point over the weekend. Shocker. So, uh, you know, taking advantage. Yeah, yeah, shocker. And <laughs> taking advantage of being in Texas where there's amazing, fresh, high-quality beef readily available. So, yeah, I really like being here. All righty, Powell. Thanks again. And you guys, I hope you got as much out of this as we did. Join us back next week. Got another great guest. I'm not going to tip our hand off, but we're going to continue this deep dive into the commodity space just so everybody knows exactly what's going on. Until next week, we'll see you then. You're listening to the Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.